We have a global interconnected economy that seems determined to grind up the entire world and turn it into products until nature is completely destroyed and the climate is raging out of control. We have potentially dangerous times ahead. This is economics. If we don't learn to manage our world economy, we will destroy ourselves. Today, we'll look at how our purchases, along with those of almost 8 billion other people, result in extraordinary damage. And of course, we'll talk about some solutions, because there are always solutions. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad you're here. So today we are talking about our large interconnected global economy and how it does some damage uh, to the environment and even causes some violence and poverty and some other related things. Um, this is an interesting one. It's fascinating, it's complex, um, and certainly affects our lives in a bunch of ways. As I prepared for this one today, this was really challenging. I feel like I have bruises um, on my brain and my heart and soul. Um, intellectually, this one's tricky because there's so much complexity here. Um, and you deserve a good, solid treatment of these important issues. So I tried really hard to get this right and handle these complex issues without oversimplifying them. Um, but also, it kind of hurt my heart and soul, too, um, because I care so much about the environment and about nature and about our climate. Um, this is really, really important to me personally. So I spend tons of time in nature. I, it's part of my therapy. Like that's where I go to take care of myself and stay grounded and deal with the challenges of life is in nature. Um, it's a deep part of my spirituality. And so it just hurts as I've done these like countless hours of research about the environmental destruction that's happening these days. It's just, it's pretty hard stuff, you know? Um, but let's dive in. We'll handle this together. We'll get through it. It's, it's all right. Um, but you know, with this deep um, caring for nature that I carry and concern also about the um, the impacts on humanity of our destruction of nature and the climate and the catastrophic things that could happen in the future if we continue to destroy it in this way. I carry these kind of concerns with me every day. And so when I'm out in public 
it kind of freaks me out a little bit. Um, I mean, I handle it. You don't have to worry about my mental health. But when I'm out there and I see the insane amount of consumption that's happening in the world, it just, um, it's startling when I notice the implications and, and think about it. So recently I ended up in a Walmart store and um, it was one of those freak out moments. I looked around the store that's enormous and I saw thousands and thousands of products. Um, I looked up in the internet and saw that a typical Walmart store contains about 120,000 products. So I looked around and considered the material physical resources required to make all those things that have to come from somewhere, all the energy that it took to create those things and ship them to the store and give them to me at my fingertips. Um, but then also each product requires a factory to make it. So that means hundreds of thousands of factories to make those 120,000 products. Um, and even each of those products took many factories because take a food product that has like 20 or 30 ingredients in it. That's like 20 or 30 factories to make those ingredients. Or maybe uh, a piece of electronic equipment that requires many factories to make each of those parts that it contains. And then, you know, all these products... Um, well, just one quick fact. I also looked up that in the world we have 10 million factories. So 10 million factories kind of boggles the mind. Like if I tried to put them all in one place, you could probably cover, you know, a state or a country with 10 million factories. It would be farther than the eye could see. And all this activity is supported by the stuff required to get the physical substances, you know, logging to get trees, mining to get the, the uh, metals, you know, oil drilling, water, farms to get the food products. So it's just pretty insane how much apparatus we've made to give ourselves the things that we need and want. We now have an enormous interconnected global economy. Now, despite my concerns here, I'm not anti-capitalist because there are amazing aspects to this global economy. Um, it has provided more prosperity for more people than ever in human history. And even in terms of managing our existential risks in the world, of which there are several, we now have more resources than ever for tackling the serious problems in the world. You know, like I'll cover in other episodes, there's no shortage of money in the world. And so this gives us great capability to handle these big problems. So I'm not anti-economy or anti-business or any of that. Um, but at the same time, this system is warming the climate, and it's destroying the natural environment um, everywhere, but really intensely in certain places. And in some places even causes violence, as we'll see later. 
So this enormous interconnected machine, it's like the biggest, most powerful machine human beings have created so far in history. And we built it with no steering wheel and no brakes. Like there's not much control over this thing. It's just driving really fast, really hard. And we don't really have the tools at our disposal to like steer it or slow it down when needed. Um, so it's putting us in some dangerous situations. So today what I'm going to talk about is how your purchases and my purchases cause damage in the world. In some place, sometimes in far-flung far flung places that we're not even thinking about. But also, um, I want us to notice that our individual choices matter here. So, like, I understand that every product I buy or use takes physical substance and energy to bring it to me. So I've reduced consumption wherever I can. And I hope that you will too, because that's really important. But our efforts to be responsible consumers are very difficult when we're embedded in this complex global economy. We all live within a system, and it's hard to know where your stuff is coming from and what damage it's doing because it's all so complex. So if we're going to really stop the damage, we have to change these systems to get them under control. So as we talk today about the economy, um, if you're well-versed in economics, that's great. You're welcome here. I'm, I'm glad you're here. If you're not well-versed in economics, that's fine too. This will all be understandable. Don't worry. So I'm going to talk today about how this large globally interconnected economy works. Um, I will also go more in depth with three examples of places in the world that are being destroyed by our global economy, um, namely our rainforests, which we desperately need in order to maintain the climate. And then I'll talk about some international systems that may help us manage this very international situation. So buckle your seatbelt. Let's dig into this. Um, and you need the seatbelt because the world economy has no brakes or no steering wheel. So uh, have fun. Um, as I dive into all this, I'm feeling a bit of nervousness actually in talking about it because I know that out in our society, there's so many fights and arguments about this kind of stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, in our cultures, it's very common for people to pick sides and then fight. And I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm not a fighter. I want us to all come together and solve some problems. But also, I'm not approaching this in a very ideological sort of way. I just want to take a good look at it and solve these environmental problems. Um, one of the fights that happens or that I hear about is around the term globalization. Because a lot of people notice that over the last few decades, we have developed a more interconnected world, interconnected um, capitalism uh, economy with global corporations and noticing the damage that it does um, for environment and for people sometimes. And so then it gets 
this friction is about like, do we want globalization or do we not? You know, there's another way. So some people love it. Other people want things to be far more locally based or based in their own country and focus there. Um, I'm not really going to get into that argument because I just want to talk about the reality of what is right now. Like we do have this system that is in place and we need the tools to manage it or else it will do damage. And so whatever your thoughts are about whether global is, a globalized economy is good or bad, whatever we want to do, we need tools. And we just don't have the tools. Like the thing is just running and there's not much control over it. So we need to build that in. Um, another type of argument I often hear is based on like free, free markets versus governments. Like more government or less government. Um, some people want to regulate a lot of things. Other people want no regulation and say, just get government out of my business so that business and economy can thrive. Um, some of this breaks down along liberal versus conservative lines. This is also an argument that um, it frustrates me because it often gets oversimplified. I think simplification happens in a very complex situation like this that's tricky for everybody to get a handle on and understand. And so it's much easier to approach it with these values-based arguments. And I mean, yeah, I have values too, um, but I don't feel like I'm liberal or conservative or like I kind of hate that whole fight anyway. Um, so if I do have an ideology here, it's that I want to protect the environment and climate so that it doesn't like damage human prosperity going forward and that we don't have a horrible future. Like that's my ideology. Um, I just want to keep the human race from destroying itself. Really, that's what I'm after. So let me just tell you briefly about these problems that I'm trying to solve here. We are right now in the middle of the Earth's sixth mass extinction. So five times before in the history of the world, we've had times where species go extinct rapidly. Right now is number six. Currently, we are losing species faster than at any time in the last 65 million years when the dinosaurs died off. We also have one in four of our remaining species in danger of extinction. So there's a lot more that we may lose. And humans have not um, been around to witness this amount of extinction before. So we don't fully understand the consequences. All of this is from humans punishing nature in so many ways. Um, with remarkable technology and tools and systems. So a lot of this is from land use, basically um, animals and plants losing their habitat because we're turning nature into farms or into pavement and buildings and all that stuff. Some of this is from meat production, which has big climate and environmental consequences. Uh, some of this is from overfishing, so fish are just running out in the oceans, using up fresh water, which we have a limited supply of, 
and already water shortages are happening in some places and this is likely to intensify in the future. There's tons of deforestation especially in our tropical rainforests which we'll dig into more later um, but we're just losing trees like crazy. Uh, we're making tons of plastic much of it ends up in nature especially the oceans there's pollution from manufacturing there are lots of chemicals in the world um, I'm especially concerned about these ones called forever chemicals that persist in nature for hundreds of years and they don't break down I'm also concerned about chemicals called endocrine disruptors that basically disrupt the reproductive cycle of both humans and animals out in nature. So we actually need more animals. We don't need to disrupt the reproduction. So all of these trends I've rattled off, they are not only huge, but they're still growing. So when you look at the graph, it's still increasing our more and more damage. And so we still just do not have a handle on this stuff. There is an organization I like called the Global Footprint Network. What they do is they accumulate data on all these environmental impacts that I've rattled off and probably more, and they compare that with what the Earth can handle. So with any impact we have, the Earth has some ability to withstand it. So, f and, and what we want is a, a steady state of equilibrium. So, consider trees. We want trees to regrow at the same rate that we're tearing them down. If we tear down trees faster than we can regrow, then we're losing forests. Or with water. If we're taking water out of aquifers and lakes and streams faster than rainfall replenishes it, then we have water shortages. Or if we're taking fish out of the ocean faster than they can regrow back. Um, or if we're putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere faster than nature can absorb it, then we're depleting our planet. And with these sort of steady um, states, we're way past that on a whole bunch of fronts. So humans right now are living like we have 1.6 Earths. So basically, you know, it's like 60% more than we should be consuming in order for the planet to handle it. Um, another way to look at it is that the Global Footprint Network has an Earth Overshoot Day, which last year was August 22nd. And so that basically means that by August 22nd, we have consumed our year's supply of consumption. And then everything from August 22nd through the end of the year is just extra. So that's basically damage that we're doing. And that's also robbing from our future um, because the future will be depleted because we won't have this intact nature to do the important things we needed to do. So <sighs> impacts of this destruction of nature that worry me most include our increasing risk of pandemics. Pandemics are bad when we have, you know, millions of people dying 
or possibly more if we have a worse pandemic. Um, please, if you're interested in this, see my other episode I did really talking about pandemic risk and um, nature involved with that. Also, there could be food and water shortages um, as we lose nature because these are part of the natural systems. And so if we screw up the natural systems, people may not be able to eat. They might not have water. And uh, this is dangerous. And then I anticipate there are other problems that we just don't know about yet because we're destroying nature faster than at any time in human history. So, and actually in the history of the world, to be honest, even before humans. And so we have never witnessed the destruction of nature this fast. And we've also never noticed, um, we've never seen the climate change this quickly. There have been climate cycles over history where it gets warmer and cooler over time. But right now, it's changing faster than at any of those natural cycles. And so we're unleashing a lot of really rapid change. And we just don't know what the impact is going to be. And we're just creating a lot of risk for ourselves. Um, Climate change, like I've mentioned, is is related to all this overconsumption um, because we're burning fossil fuel, and fossil fuel is used in the production and shipping of all this stuff that we consume. That's economic activity that is causing climate change. And so the results of that are we're starting to see some. We've got wildfires happening. We've got permafrost melting, glaciers melting, sea level rising. We've got more erratic weather. Um, farming is more difficult. In some places, farmers are just giving up. In other places, farmers are still operating, but they don't know when to plant in the spring because they don't know when the, what, what the weather is going to be doing. It's just hard to farm in an unpredictable environment. Right now, we have temperatures that are hotter than all of recorded history. Um, and certainly the hottest we've seen since the age or the end of the Ice Age 12,000 years ago. The last time this much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere was 3 million years ago. At that time, Earth was three to four degrees Celsius warmer than it is right now, and the sea level was 80 feet higher the last time we had this amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So those outcomes might be waiting for us. Also, in our efforts to fight climate change, we really need intact nature in order to stabilize the climate because intact nature absorbs carbon dioxide. And so if we're killing off nature, we don't have that absorption of carbon dioxide happening. Um, I'm especially concerned about our rainforests and our oceans um, because those are huge absorbers um, of greenhouse gases. So even if we go totally renewable energy right now and stop our emissions, we still have tons of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that are still going to be there. 
And so we need to draw down this carbon dioxide and we need nature to do that for us. So our efforts to solve climate change um, thankfully are getting like bigger interest and people are talking about it. But I hear typically about the process of going to renewables like the solar panels and the wind turbines and the electric cars and all that. That's awesome. It's crucially important. But I'm not hearing the attention to nature in this. And we need to preserve nature to deal with the climate. So, um, yeah, all that is happening. I'm really very concerned about this environmental damage. If you are not deeply alarmed by this, um, I encourage you to go listen to my other episode, number two where I talk about all this environmental trends in more detail than I have here, and I discuss this in more depth. Um, so I wanna talk and, and shift to the economic stuff. For right now, I'm just gonna assume that you know that we're in a really urgent situation and we need to fix this quickly. All of this um, environmental destruction is economics. It's commerce. It's making and selling products and food and energy. Um, all this activity is greatly intensified by the fact that we have almost 8 billion humans on the planet. So we've had an enormous explosion of human population over just the last, you know, 100 years or a little more. So as you look at the graph of human population, um, you know, since the last ice age, it just hugs the bottom of the graph. And then around 1990, it just goes upward and it's going like almost vertical. And so um, we've had this enormous increase in population where in 1900, it was about a billion people or so. Now, 120 years later, we've got almost 8 billion. So that's a factor here. Also, if we just look at the size of the economy over time, it's also quite dramatic, the increase we've had. So we can look at a graph of the world economy over, you know, the last couple thousand years. And on this graph, it's adjusted for inflation. And it just goes up even more dramatically. So it hugs the bottom of the graph and then it just goes vertical. It's like an almost vertical line showing us the growth of our economy. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, yeah, of course, because we have a growing population that's consuming more things, we're gonna have more activity. But there's something more than that going on here because if we look at the year 1900 through today, the population growth has been about 4.6. So we have about four and a half times the number of people we had in 1900. But the economic growth is times 32. So we now have 32 times the economic activity we had in 1900. So going like times four and a half versus times 32, 
That's a really big difference. So there's something going on here that is economic. Now, I'm going to offer a quick math lesson here, but don't worry, there's no test, and I'm more friendly than your teachers in school. So if we look at this very steep graph of economic growth that goes vertical, it can be surprising. Often because we don't see it graphed that way, um, people tend to think of economic growth as being fairly constant, like a line. Um, and sometimes we'll see a graph over several years showing us some ups and downs, but we rarely see a graph that looks at it more historically like this or, or long term. So people often like to see 3% growth. That's what our economists tell us is good for a healthy economy. So what's deceiving about this, though, is it like 3% doesn't sound like a lot. It's like 3%, that's nothing. But if we're doing that every year, every year that 3% is bigger because it's 3% of a larger economy. So the economy this year is larger than last year. So this year's 3% is going to be bigger than last year's 3%. And so each year we're adding a bigger chunk onto our economy. So if you have, con and, and there's always ups and downs, but if you have constant 3% growth, the economy doubles in 23 years. Um, and so over like a century or a couple centuries, it's been doubling and doubling and doubling. And the earth does not double. Like the earth just is. Nature does not double. The atmosphere does not double. And so we have this constant doubling on a planet that does not double. There's limits here. And so we're drastically crashing up against these limits. And I expect something's going to break because that graph of the economy going vertical, just sort of shooting for outer space on a limited planet, something's going to break. So there's going to be some resource depletion, like we could run out of wood or run out of water or run out of oil or, you know, whatever it is that could cause economic um, hardship. Or we could have climate issues because, you know, the floods and the hurricanes and this rising sea level and the food shortages and water shortages and all that stuff that will come from climate change, all that's bad for the economy. And so that also could be a cause for an economic crash. This economic growth um, that's been quite dramatic is often seen as a really good thing. In fact, in our politics, in our culture, and among economists, like economic growth is a religion, almost. Like everybody wants more economic growth, and if there's not growth one year, everybody gets upset and freaks out. I want us to look at growth differently um, because we don't want this crash to happen. You know, and if we just have economic growth, 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 growth on a finite planet, something's going to happen. It's actually starting to happen. So there's arguments among economists on how to look at this. 
um, even among those who understand the environmental uh, damage happening. Some people say that we need to actively stop economic growth, at least in a, on a worldwide way. And they refer to this as degrowth. Um, now, I would just caution that we don't want degrowth or, you know, shrinking economy in already poor places. Like those are places where we need to lift up incomes and get people fed and give people a decent standard of living, you know, so I would never want that. But many people notice that in wealthier countries that are consuming the most and doing the most damage to the world environment, that in those places we might be able to not have the growth and be okay because, you know, there's resources. There's other people in the economic realm that say that we can decouple economic growth from the environment so that basically that graph can continue to go upward. We can still have the growth, but we just don't have the economic impact. Um, ways that this could happen is through greater efficiency in the way we do things, certainly in the move to renewable energy instead of using carbon. Um, and people notice our digital world where we can handle things digitally instead of like printing paper or, you know, that kind of thing. So um, this argument rages on. I'm not an economist, so I can't assess it, but I want to pay attention to this space because it's critically important. And I think we all need to consciously decide how we manage this because instead of just waiting around for a crash to happen, we should consciously transition ourselves to an economy that is more um, compatible with our world and us having a future where we have nature and climate suitable for humans. So somehow we need to restrain our consumption and then just don't freak out if we don't have the booming economic growth that people are looking for. Um, part of that economic growth mindset is that, you know, they're afraid if we don't have the growth, it's going to trigger like a crash in a stock market or panic or whatever that then makes everything plummet. So if we could somehow just have everybody not freak out, that would be really good. Another thing is that to better manage our economy, we need to understand how globally interconnected it is. And that level of interconnection has been increasing over the last few decades. So currently, about one-fourth of global production is exported somewhere, which is far less than, or I'm sorry, it's far more than what it used to be. And um, just imagine if we subtract one-fourth of world production, what that would do to our economy. Then you would have an economic crash and you'd have people unable to eat because they lose their jobs and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's so much now that you can't simply just shut it off. There's no off switch for this um, that we could do that would avoid starvation and um, instability, you know? So this again leads to like a managed transition we need to have. Um, so if we look at a graph of global exports, um, 
basically this buying and selling goods between countries, also adjusted for inflation, it hugs the bottom of the graph until about 1950 and then just zooms skyward and has been going really rapidly for the last half century. Uh, zooming in on that, if we look at the year 1950, there was about $61 billion worth of exports in global trade. In 2018, that was over 19,000 billion basically 19 trillion. So we went from $61 billion to $19,000 billion in global trade. Like, that's really dramatic. I don't know what percent increase that is, but it's just pretty insane. So another way to look at this global interconnectedness is um, the way that with even one individual product, it contains pieces from many countries. So one example is an automobile. Um, because car companies are truly international companies. So in the magazine Car and Driver, they did an article um, aimed at people, at Americans who want to buy an American car. Um, I'm not like preaching American right now. I don't care where you buy your car from. Um, but there are some Americans who want an American car. But their car that was the most American had only 70% American parts. The rest of the parts are from elsewhere. And that was the most. Most even American companies are buying from all over the world, as are cars made in all the countries. These are truly global companies. So, you know, a product like this will use parts from many countries and then assemble cars in multiple countries and then sell cars all over the world. So an American car is not really an American car or an English car is not an American car, a Japanese car, it's not really a Japanese car, you know, it's, um, these are global companies. And then this globalized thing can be seen with other countries, um, companies, I'm sorry, um, consider Amazon, where they source products from all over the world and have distribution centers all over the world and they sell to all over the world or UPS and FedEx that do delivery truly global McDonald's has restaurants all over the world you know big company like Apple like they sell all over the world and then there's some companies that are even less physical because they're making a digital product so consider Google you know the world wide web um, or Disney that's making entertainment that can be easily exported. Um, so it makes us consider what country do these companies actually belong to? I mean, they may be headquartered somewhere and people consider them as belonging to a country, but they really don't. Like we have tons of truly global companies. And so this offers a whole different challenge in regulating this space. If global companies do get out of control or do damage the environment or hurt workers or do other bad things, who can truly regulate them? Because they're global. So 
There are pros and cons to this kind of interconnected economy. And um, again, I'm not entirely against it. It just needs to be managed. On the positive side, um, it offers efficiency. It offers an availability of products that is just unprecedented in human history. Like we have at our disposal so many things that meet our needs and our trivial, trivial wants even. Um, it also allows countries to specialize in what they do. So countries can get really good at a few things instead of trying to do everything. That's especially important for smaller countries who, um, you know, have a smaller workforce, but also have a smaller set of natural resources at their disposal. So lar geographically large countries like, say, United States or Russia or China, um, they can accumulate many types of resources from nature and use them for products. But smaller countries don't have all of that within their borders. And so they need to trade for that. And so um, large countries maybe can decide to just go it alone and have their own economy. But in most cases, more prosperity is possible with this trade because countries can't do everything. And then historically, over human history, um, countries have invaded each other militarily for resources because their neighbor has mining or forests or like whatever it is that they want. And so they would just invade them to take it. Now, with a more interconnected global economy, countries can just trade for it, and that reduces word warfare. I'd much rather have global trade than warfare for countries to get what they need. On the negative side of all this, um, like I mentioned, we have these global corporations that can't be really regulated by any one country. Also, corporations tend to move their manufacturing to the countries with the weakest regulations. Countries that are poor or desperate, um, or they simply have weak governments, so they're unable to enforce things. So companies move their uh, manufacturing to places where they can more easily pollute the environment, pay workers less, treat labor more poorly, uh, they might have poor safety standards. Um, they also shift their money around to avoid taxes. And so in some ways, this economy can get sort of out of control because there's no boundaries or containment. They can just kind of move where they want and do what they want. Um, and on the environmental side, there are many situations around the world where in poorer countries, there's more pollution that happens. There's more destruction of natural resources. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. Um, one very important issue with this interconnected economy is that it separates customers from the production. And so customers don't really know where their stuff is coming from and how it was produced and what resources were used for it. So you know, many, many years ago, our ancestors had commerce that was local. 
you would go to a local market and you'd be standing in front of a farmer or um, you know a dairy farmer or a blacksmith or just whatever you're buying it would be face to face and you could have a sense of what that person does and how they do what they do um, and also it was maybe more easy to choose who to do business with um, but now we're all buying products that are made by faceless people elsewhere on the planet, um, and many of them by unknown companies around the world. Because just notice, even if we're buying from a big brand that we know, they are likely sourcing parts or materials or ingredients from many other countries that we just don't know. So we don't know where our stuff is coming from. A lot of people um, who have, basically people sometimes look to consumer choice as the solution in driving environmental responsibility by companies. So there will be sometimes, you know, a social media campaign or a protest or a petition or whatever to get a company to improve its ways. That's all good. Um, but it's only a piece of the solution um, that can work more easily with big companies that have a brand or a public image to maintain. So they don't want to look bad and lose customers. But there are tons of products in the world that are made by like small brands or no name brands or like generic or like nobody. You don't even know who it is. Um, you know, if you go on Amazon and just shop around for something, there's lots of just, there's no brand on it. It's just a thing. I don't know who made it, um, or brands I never heard of. Um, and so knowing what companies are doing takes lots of research, especially with so many companies out there and each of them having so many suppliers People just don't have time to do that research. I mean, I applaud it. Like if you put the time in and know where you're getting your stuff from, like that's awesome. Like do that if you can. But it's really hard in this current stage to know what we're getting. Um, and so if we're going to simply rely on our almost 8 billion people to do an impossible amount of research, in order to solve our environment is just not going to work. You know, we need other ways. So far, I've been talking in general terms about the global economy and about the environment, but I now want to shift and talk more specifics with three examples that I've researched and accumulated for you. Um, all three of these are rainforests. Now you can find environmental damage from the economy all over the world in many different ways. But I focused here on rainforests because they're so insanely important. Um, they capture carbon from the atmosphere and we have a warming climate with too much carbon dioxide in it. And so um, the rainforests are critical to our efforts to solve the climate. And unfortunately, in climate change discussions, I'm not hearing enough about that. Um, like I said, it's this, you know, 
push to go renewable energy, which is great, but we need a rainforests desperately. So um, in addition to this carbon absorption effect that we need, the flip side is that when rainforest is destroyed, it emits tons of carbon. So you've got um, tons of carbon from the trees and plants that are there, but also rainforests have a layer of peat under them. Peat is a material that, you know, you'll find like several feet of this um, on the top of the ground, which is basically accumulated um, life over many years. So when trees and animals and such die, they decompose on the floor of the rainforest and it's this layered up um, you know, if you were to leave it there for like a million years, it would squash and become oil one day. Um, but right now it's on the top of the ground and it's just got tons of carbon in it. And so if you just expose that to the air, it gets released. Or if you dig it through mining, carbon gets released. And especially gets released if you burn it. And a lot of forest clearing is happening through burning or accidentally through wildfires. So these areas of rainforest have the most intense biodiversity on the planet. So they contain 10% of our land, but 50% of our species. They are just so rich with life. And... I believe these places are spiritually important. They are um, so deeply important to the world ecosystem. They have the strongest life force on the planet. So even if we don't recognize its loss, if we're not paying attention, I think it would hurt us all sort of spiritually, really, if we lose, lose these places. Um, and would have a lot of unintended effects that we just don't know in terms of unraveling ecosystems and instability in the world around us. And what's happening is these places of such dense life, you can have a place with so many species that has evolved over thousands of years, and then it's gone in one day. It's just gone, gone. And it took thousands of years to develop. Um, and the species living there that go extinct, they're never coming back either. So the first example I'll talk about is the Amazon. Um, that's in Brazil, Peru, Colombia, and little chunks in a few other countries nearby. Um, rapid deforestation. So there are concerns by scientists who study the place that it eventually could stop being rainforest. That if there's enough deforestation, it could turn to savanna or grassland, basically a hot place that's dry with grasses and a few shrubs, instead of the dense, you know, life that it is right now. Um, this deforestation interacts with weather and rainfall. So they basically, the respiration of the trees and the moisture that they use and give out is so strong because there's so much life there that it actually affects wind currents in the re region. So there are wind currents 
basically caused by the tree's activity that come from the ocean and bring moisture to the rainforest. And so with fewer trees, this um, system breaks down and then there's less rain. And so with less rain, there's more drying out of the trees and everything there. Um, and then climate change adds to this because the world is getting warmer. So with the warming and the deforestation, the forest can dry out. And um, so far in the last few decades, humans have destroyed about 17% of the Amazon rainforest. Scientists estimate that if that gets to between 20 and 25%, we could reach this tipping point where all this unraveling happens and it stops being rainforest. And if we hit that tipping point, if we have that insane amount of carbon in that rainforest just go up into our atmosphere through lots of wildfires and such, it's going to make it really hard to um, tackle climate change. So some of this destruction is from logging and mining, you know, to sell the trees for wood or, um, you know, to sell metals and such. Um, there's some oil drilling that happens there. Um, there's also, you know, most of this is through beef and soy. So people are clearing land so that they can graze cattle there um, or they can grow soybeans. Those are the two largest products. Now, the majority of beef is consumed in Brazil. I think it's about 70% or so. But a good chunk of that does get exported. Um, and then plenty of soy gets exported as well. Now, the majority of soy is not actually used by consumers in like, you know, soy milk or tofu or whatever. Um, the biggest purpose is to feed meat animals. So lots of soy gets um, consumed by chickens that people eat. Um, and then another decent percentage of this is sold as soy, um, like vegetable oil. It's used for cooking and frying and, and whatever. So, um, with this decent amount of exporting that they're doing from the rainforest, it can be really difficult for us to know if our food or products are coming from the Amazon. Um, it may not be labeled adequately. Or in the case of, you know, say you're eating chicken that's, you know, raised in whatever country, it might be consuming soy from the Amazon. Um, or if you walk into a restaurant and get a cheeseburger, um, you don't know where that meat came from. There's no label on it, you know, so it can be difficult to know if your dollars are supporting that destruction. Another thing is that um, many large banks and investment firms continue to support companies that are destroying the Amazon through their deforestation and producing various products. And some of these are big companies involved. Some are very small operations, you know, by individuals, but this company is making money. And there's also companies that are making the infrastructure to make this possible, like roads and ports and such that bring these products out to the global market. 
So big, you know, banks and investment firms you may have heard of, like BlackRock, Capital Group, Vanguard, Fidelity, Fidelity Investments, um, these have all invested in companies that are supporting this deforestation. So it's worth considering if you know where your stocks and retirement funds and mutual funds are going. You know, sometimes with investments, we have these packaged products where, you know, you have a mutual fund that has a hundred things in it, and it's pretty hard to go and research all those hundred things. Um, so you might be accidentally supporting um, this deforestation and could be worth talking with your financial advisor to see if you guys know where your money's going. So... Um, in the show notes, I just want to say that I've got links to a couple articles about that investing process and many, many other things related to what we're talking about. Another example is our world's third largest rainforest in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia and Malaysia. 85% of the world's palm oil comes from here, from these two countries. And what happens is rainforest gets cleared in order to plant plantations where they grow palm trees. Now, some people might think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, we're replacing trees with trees. The problem is that you, you know, remove all the thousands of other species that exist in that place. And so it, there's no comparison between a palm plantation and vibrant nature. So this is a huge industry. Um, about 3 billion people in the world end up consuming palm oil from 150 countries using this. And it goes into so many types of products, um, cooking and frying oil, baked goods, ice cream, chocolate, most fast food, uh, in shampoos, detergents, lipstick, it's used for fuel, um, used for adhesives. Um, Europe uses a lot of it for fuel, and it's actually worse than gasoline. They did that as an attempt to um, reduce the use of petroleum, but then with all this environmental destruction, it's actually worse than like burning gasoline. Globally, on average, each of us uses about 17 pounds of palm oil. That's eight kilograms every year. From the year 1995 through 2015, in about 20 years, it quadrupled the amount of palm oil being used. At its current rate of increase, that will quadruple again by 2050. Um, this ends up being about 10% of global cropland. So, What's happening with this destruction, though, is that we're losing tigers, rhinos, orangutans. They're driven off their land as uh, these rainforests are cleared, and plenty more is dying, you know? Um, and so a lot of these creatures are going toward extinction, and we're about to lose them, in addition to all the climate effects that I've described. So... I personally avoid palm oil, and I do this because I want to reduce the world demand for this product. 
versus supply. So I'm not suggesting that the world should completely ban palm oil because in some ways it has its purpose. It's an incredibly useful product for so many different things, um, but also it's very efficient. You can grow a lot of oil on an acre, more than any of the other oils that would replace it. So if you were to replace this palm oil with some other kind of oil, instead of one acre in Indonesia, it might take you, you know, six or seven acres somewhere else. And so, you know, some argue that with land preservation, that palm is a good thing because it's so efficient. The problem is that it's in the rainforest and we desperately need a rainforest and that's some of the most important places on the planet to protect. So, um, I don't know, that's why I reduce, uh, I avoid palm oil myself. Um, there are some useful programs that are starting to happen where um, palm oil can be certified as sustainable. So they call it sustain sustainable palm oil. And basically, they're working with farmers to boost efficiency so that each acre can grow more palm. Um, and, you know, the goal is to eliminate deforestation, but it has not yet limited deforestation. And I don't think this ever will be a complete solution, because as long as you have global demand higher than what current plantations can produce, then people are going to keep tearing down forest. There's just basic economics there. So somehow we need to um, get a handle on this. And something else I find interesting about palm oil is that um, it's actually unnecessary. Like it gets used in a lot of different things, but none of it is critical to life. Like I'm living without palm oil and I'm... I'm breathing and my heart beating and like I'm happy and I'm fine, you know. Um, for the things it gets used for, like cosmetics and makeup and shampoos and whatever, like there's other things that can be used. Even in terms of food, like you don't actually have to have cooking oil. Like it's possible to cook without oil um, or to go without frying things. So, and certainly like the ice cream and the candy and whatever else, like, you know, cookies, crackers, like these are not essential. So it just, it's an interesting observation on how weird this world economy gets when we're destroying critical rainforest for something that's kind of a luxury that we don't have to have. It's interesting. And then a third example to talk about is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, known for short as DRC or DR Congo. This is the world's second largest rainforest in the world. So this place contains about 80% of a mineral called coltan, which is critical in making cell phones, laptops, video games, various electronics. There's a bunch of other materials that come from here, like copper, cobalt, zinc, tin, manganese, gold, silver, platinum, a whole bunch of other things. Um, some of them I've never even heard of. 
there's tons and tons of minerals from this place. So, you know, the equipment I'm using to record and speak with you right now probably has minerals from the DRC. My cell phone and your cell phone, my computer and your computer probably have minerals from the DRC. So all of us are involved in this. Um, the demand for minerals is also growing. So um, as we make the shift from renewable, you know, to renewable energy uh, to fight climate change, involving lots of new equipment and wiring and batteries and the electric grids upgrading and all that, um, will be a lot more demand for these minerals from this country. Also, the digital revolution is happening. So there's the growth in computers and gadgets and robots and big server farms and data centers and whatever else that's powering the internet and everything else computer related. All this is intensifying the demand for minerals. Now you would think with all this demand that the DRC would make out like gangbusters and do really well. But in fact, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. It has a very unstable government. Um, they've been making really slow progress toward democracy, but it's been really challenging. Um, there's government corruption. There's violence. Um, it's just a mess there. Part of this violence is driven by these minerals that the world consumes. It's like this mixing of commerce with armed conflict. Um, it's kind of like there's criminal gangs running the whole mineral sector. Um, and they're getting their money from the mining of coltan and other materials. That's how they're buying their guns and feeding their, you know, guys with weapons and all. Um, now, this mining is not the only cause of this armed conflict, but it is a major factor, and it is funding this militarization of the place. Um, the conflicts, um, it's just messy. You know, they've got Rwanda right nearby, um, next door, and so there was the issues with the genocide back in the 90s, and that whole region has been destabilized by that process. There's clashes between Tutsis and Hutus, and that's also the case for in the DRC. Um, there's also a genocide unfolding. Uh, there's a minority group called the Banya Malenge, who have just been brutalized by these armed militias. Uh, their villages have been burned, their cattle stolen, they've been driven from their homes. There's orphans, there's hunger, there's enormous sexual violence in this place committed largely by these armed militias. Um, and really, if you're a woman, this is one of the worst places in the world to be. It's incredibly dangerous for women. Um, I'm going to just make a quick note that if the situation we're talking about kind of tugs at your heartstrings, there's a, um, a charity that you can contribute to um, if you're so moved. Um, it's run by a friend of mine who lives in the DRC. His name is Reverend John Gisor. 
um, he's running this program basically to feed the hungry people. Like there's orphans, there's people who are homeless, and they're getting them fed. But also there's more long-term strategies working with farmers to help them increase food stability in the region. So it's really good work. I've donated some money myself. You might want to also. Um, I donated just because I feel guilty because with my purchases, I've contributed to some of this in the area. Um, this mining that happens, a lot of it is smaller scale um, operations. So it's just, you know, individual miners using very simple tools and lots of hard work. They get paid very little for their work, um, but it's a poor place, so they're desperate for whatever they can get. Um, some of them are, you know, like in organized mines by companies, but some are just freelance. They just go out there and get what they can get and sell it. A lot of times workers are overseen by these armed militias. And the militias are, they have some turf warfare with each other. On addition, in addition to the sort of ethnic conflict and whatever, they're battling for turf because it's worth so much money. So they're you know, fighting with each other to capture an area to mine it. Um, often they're clearing jungle to do this. So basically they're taking all the fabulous nature and just removing it so they can get to the minerals underneath. Um, and as they do this, it's environmentally destructive. I mean, not only the deforestation, but there's also erosion, pollution, a lot of water use. A lot of nearby waterways get polluted heavily by this sediment and the minerals that they're unleashing as they do this. Now, they're doing this out in very remote areas. Um, and so they're just going off into the rainforest. They don't have food that is provided for them by their boss or anything, and they're kind of poor. So they just go out there and they hunt animals to eat while they're out there. So they're hunting gorillas and other things. The gorilla population is declining rapidly um, from this hunting and also from the loss of habitat. And then for those of you concerned about pandemics, might want to just notice that there's guys out there eating gorillas. And then they could potentially be getting an illness that they bring back to the village or the nearby city. And then with our interconnected global economy and travel system can really end up elsewhere. Um, gorillas and other primates have uh, immune system very similar to humans and so if a disease can affect a gorilla it probably can affect us. So this is on top of other poverty dynamics like poor sanitation and no health care and whatever else so this place really could become the source of our next pandemic. Um, minerals that um, in this activity are kind of hard to trace. There's efforts growing to try to manage this whole thing. Um, companies who source these minerals, especially large tech companies that have a brand image to protect, are wanting to buy conflict-free minerals. So um, they're starting to put systems in place where there's monitoring and tracking of where minerals came from. And if they were done in an ethical way that does not, you know, support the violence and the militias and all that, or the child labor that often happens there, 
Um, but this is still, you know, just a small portion of the overall mining sector. There's lots of smuggling that happens. This is a very chaotic place. The government does not have much control there. Um, and so in this supply chain, there's a lot of middlemen. And so it goes from a mine to a person, to another person, to a company, to another company. And it's just, it's often hard to know what you're getting and where it comes from. Um, this violence happening is destabilizing for the government. The government's having enough trouble already, but now they're managing violence in this sort of lawless, chaotic space that they just can't really control. And so it really undermines the entire governance of the country. And then that, in turn, makes it hard for the government to control the other ways in which deforestation is happening. Some is just through poverty. Like people are desperate for a way to eat and make a living. So they're going out there and they're logging, they're farming, um, you know, small scale farms. Um, a lot of people are using wood as fuel. So it's, I forget the number, like 16% or something of the country is electrified. So a lot of people have no electricity. So they're just using wood to burn for cooking and whatever. Um, so this lawless kind of chaos is just horribly bad for the forest and we're losing it. This forest is not as well studied as the Amazon. So we're not sure if there's a tipping point here, like I described with the Amazon. But I mean, we assume that there is, we just don't know how close we are to it. So if that point is reached, it could affect water and food for the entire region, because it would change the climate and the weather patterns. And this area of um, the world in much of Africa has already struggled and there already have been famines. So to add that disruption of, you know, loss of rainfall on top of that could just be, there could be tons of suffering. So this place, um, in terms of dealing with the climate, might be the most important place in the world, both because of this rainforest that we might lose, but also because of all the minerals that are there that there would be demand for as we switch to renewables. So that sourcing of minerals is incredibly important for this switch to renewables, but it's in this chaotic, lawless kind of situation um, and so it's just kind of weird and contradictory to me that in our efforts to go green and fight climate change, we're going to support this place that's destroying the rainforest. Like our purchases of these minerals to go green is contributing to rainforest loss. Like we're not really getting anywhere with that. And so this contradiction unless it's managed, it, like we're not going to fight the climate. So I don't know, this is not all about the United States, right? But I just happen to notice that when President Biden took office, there are all these questions about, you know, well, how is he going to treat China? What's he going to do about Russia? What's he going to do with Iran, etc.? 
I didn't hear anybody say, what's he going to do with Democratic Republic of Congo? Like, this is one of the most important places on the earth, and I'm just not hearing much conversation about it in political circles or in the mainstream news media. So with these three rainforest examples I've shared, notice what it's like to be in this um, interconnected global economy that divorces us from the impacts of what we're doing with our purchases. Like, if we could be up close to these situations face-to-face, -face, could we actually spend our money and support it that way? So, like, if I want to eat a cheeseburger, like, could we just offer our money to someone to go out there to the Amazon and just clear a bunch of forest and increase climate change? Or like, I want a package of cookies. I just have the munchies. I want to eat some cookies. Here, take some money, go out to Indonesia, level a rainforest, kill some tigers and orangutans, bring me back some palm oil for my cookies. Like, could I do that? You know, what's... What's the right number of killed orangutans that makes sense for my cookies? Like, what's the number? What's the number of orangutans that's worth it for my cookies? You know? Or say I want a new cell phone. You know, yeah, my cell phone is still working. It still functions. But, you know, the new one just came out and it's kind of nice. It has some fancy features on it that I want. So here, take some money. Here, armed militias out in the DRC. Take some money, go buy yourself some nice guns with it, you know. Round up some guys and go out there to the rainforest and clear it, you know. Rape some women while you're at it, you know, have some fun. Clear some rainforest, cause some erosion, okay. Bring me back my coltan for my phone, okay, because I want a nice new fancy phone. Could I do that? You know, it's just, it's really hard. And part of the problem of solving these problems is this fact that we're divorced from the impact of our actions. And that's why we need to change these systems in order to really make progress here. Um, these three situations I've talked about are just three. There's hundreds of more around the world. I just wanted to give examples. All this is pretty darn crazy, what's happening. Um, how did we get here? How do we fix this? There's a quote that I like by Albert Einstein. He says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. So let's look at our thinking that created these problems. The discipline of modern economics developed in the 1700s and 1800s. Before then, economics happened. You know, people bought and sold things, but people didn't try to apply scientific or philosophical like principles to it. It was just happening. So it was around this time when people started studying how commerce works. And it's during this time when the ideas of a free market emerged. The idea is basically if you just leave it alone, like we don't want the government involved, just let it do its things, 
and the forces of supply and demand will supply what consumers want and everyone will be happy. And also along with this, the idea of the individual as the most important unit of action came up. So the individual consumer, the individual business, the idea is that with lots of individuals each doing what they want in their own interests will then add up to this beautiful system where everything works out. Now, this idea is ingrained in our economics, our businesses, our political systems. It's almost as strong as the religion of economic growth. These ideas are partially true. Like they do, they do result in an economy that is dynamic and has the freedom for people to pursue prosperity and it allows innovation to occur. And so there has been a lot of prosperity that's emerged from these ideas. But these ideas came around before we had 8 billion people on the planet. They happened before our spike in human population. And they emerged before we had this new powerful technology for destroying things. So with a lower population and more primitive technology, it was okay to just let people do what they want. You know, there might be some local damage here and there, but nothing catastrophic. But now it's dangerous to just let everybody do what they want in their own self-interest. So we're still running our society on old ideas that are not compatible with having 8 billion people and powerful technology and a planet at risk. And then even the idea of a free market without government involvement is kind of an illusion. Like that has never really happened. There's no such thing as a truly free market. There has always been government involvement forever supporting commerce. Um, especially as time has gone on, that government support has grown. So there's tons of infrastructure that helps commerce, like roadways and railways and airports that all help companies get their goods to market. There's the electricity grid and the power that companies need to function. There's water systems. There's trash collection. There's the internet that was invented by the US government. There's public education and public universities and colleges, which are important for creating a skilled workforce that businesses need. There's been tons of funding in science research by government that has resulted in tons of technologies that end up being commercially viable. Really important is a court system like that's government. And a court system is essential in order to create safety in an economy so that people and businesses can feel safe to invest their money in a situation and know that they're not going to get it stolen or they won't be cheated from. It allows people to enter into contracts with each other and know that there's a court system and an enforcement mechanism that will make sure that contract holds. And so that kind of safety is just critical. Um, 
And then also governments facilitate international trade. So there's a whole bunch of agreements between countries and also standardized practices so that everybody's doing things in a similar way so their stuff is compatible and it's just more efficient when everybody does it the same way. There's also been government agreements to reduce tariffs and other obstacles to trade that have allowed this international commerce to happen. So these are all really good things. These are important investments by governments. Um, poorer countries that are not able to make these investments with weaker governments, their economy suffers because these kinds of government supports are essential to sort of holding an economy together. Um, so over time, governments have supported the economy in these ways and have driven innovation and productivity. I mention this stuff because the government's role in the economy is often poorly, poorly understood and doesn't get talked about. And so this all gives us an opportunity as we contemplate this here. You know, each of us interacts with our economy as consumers and as workers. And we have an influence in those ways with the work we do, the stuff we purchase. But government is important to economy and we are citizens. So this is another way in which we have an impact in this economy that we all swim in. Um, and so... It's just important for us to citizen, as citizens to realize that economies don't exist without governments. Otherwise, it's a lawless, falling apart chaos that's bad for business. And so I don't really like exactly this framing of it as a competition between business and government because it's a relationship. It always has been a relationship that's cooperative. And so I'm looking for the right balance here so that it's a productive rate relationship and one that doesn't destroy our climate and hurt people, you know. Um, this imbalance happens in a lot of places around the world where um, government and business are out of balance. But at the global level, it's way out of balance because humans over the last couple centuries have gone from local economies and then to more national and regional economies and have had government at those levels kind of managing what's happening and keeping it safe for everybody. But now at our global economy, government has not kept up. We just don't have systems at the global level to manage this global economy. And so things are going haywire. So as we have our government support for the economy, we should be thinking about what type of economy we're supporting. Is it only for monetary benefit? Or can we use these many supports to create an economy that's healthy for the environment and for people at the same time? And can we support an economy that's compatible with having 8 billion people on the planet? I think we can, but we need to find different thinking than what got us into this mess. Now, I'm not claiming that we should 
turn away from all this and just go local and go isolationist. Um, because even if one country does that, you've got the other like hundred and some companies still out there destroying countries out there destroying things. Um, but you know, we need our systems in order to reduce our footprint on nature and reduce our footprint on the climate and even to reduce our footprint on each other in the world. So here we are in this crazy situation. What do we do about it? Um, I apologize. I am not going to perfectly solve this for us today, as you may have guessed, because it's all quite complex and I don't have all the answers. But I think I have some, and I think they're definitely worth thinking about. So one just general concept to keep in mind is our growing um, capacities with technology and managing data. And so with our computer technology and internet and whatever, this gives us the capability to understand better than ever before our complex economy and the complex environmental situations and even social situations underpinning all this. So, you know, earlier I mentioned the Global Footprint Network that, you know, comes up with data about environmental impacts. Or um, another group I like is the World Resources Institute, which acts sort of like as a think tank. And they acquire lots of research and data and then help governments and organizations manage these complexities. And there's a bunch of other groups out there that I've encountered in my research travels here which is sort of encouraging. I mean, it's a little mind-boggling because there's tons of complexity with all this, but I'm developing a, a growing optimism about our ability to manage this complexity, you know? So that's one thing, keep those efforts going. And, and also too, that, that managing of data in computing and whatever else can be blended with policymaking. So policymakers at national levels and internationally have better information at their disposal with which to make good decisions. So that's promising. I think with some of these hotspots around the world, like the rainforests and some other else, um, with the support of our scientists and data crunchers, we can prioritize where the world needs to really pay attention and solve some things. So I will argue for these three rainforests, definitely, but I'm sure there are several other places that need more intense management. As we do this, um, understanding the relationship between that place and the global economy is essential in fixing it. So on the one hand, the world can approach these places um, in a tough love sort of way. Like, basically, you know, for instance, your rainforest in your country is so critical, we can't allow it to be destroyed. So we're not going to buy products from you if you're destroying the rainforest. We're just not going to do that. So that requires a world coordination of its trade in order to deny funds 
that are then supporting deforestation. Now, simultaneously, we need to provide tons of support and love and caring for these places. So I don't only want to go hardcore and just cut them off entirely, unless that's absolutely necessary, just simply to use that as leverage to make change happen. Um, but at the same time, understand that there's poverty there. Poverty is often contributing to these environmental situations where people are far more likely to destroy the environment if they're desperate and that's their only option. So they need to feed their family. They're going to go tear down some trees if they have to or grow in the forest or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and these places have plenty of poverty. So the governments feel a strong pressure to just do whatever they have to do economically to get everybody fed and also to raise the standard of living among its citizens. So without addressing that poverty, we're, we're just always going to have this damage because there's always going to be huge um, motivation to do that. And so there's a lot the world needs to do to support these places. So basically, in, in merging this like sort of toughness with support, it's just taking a close look at the relationship between the world and that place and integrating them into the world economy in a different way. So they can make money not by tearing down forest, but by doing other jobs, making other products, selling that on the world market in a way that they can earn money and um, increase the standard of living. So it's, it's a matter of changing the relationship, really. Another approach is to look for systems globally that can basically constrain the amount of environmental impact or resource use around the planet. Um, one idea that feeds into this is by an economist that I like. Her name is Kate Rayworth. She put out a book and has this philosophy called Donut Economics. And it's called Donut because of the shape you make. Um, imagine a large circle and then imagine a smaller circle inside it. Now that larger circle on the outside represents basically what you want to limit acti economic activity to. Because if you go outside the circle beyond that amount, you're creating extra environmental damage. So basically that circle is what the planet can handle and um, when you go beyond it, you're simply destroying things or you're robbing from our future and causing more instability and climate change and destruction and the whole bit. The inner circle is the amount needed to provide for everybody on the earth in a basic way so that everybody has food, you know, healthcare, clean water, um, electricity, you know, the basics for an okay life, right? This is not making everybody rich. This is just the basics where everybody's okay. When you go smaller than that economic activity inside that small circle, you're in the realm of like instability and violence and suffering and starvation and all that, right? So, between those two circles is the donut. 
that's the safe area for the economy to survive and thrive by, you know, having enough activity to take care of everybody, but not so much activity that you ruin the planet, right? So we need global systems in order to make that happen. So that outside circle is a constraint on the economy's consumption of resources, and you have to have some mechanism for doing that. You can't just beg 8 billion individuals to consume less. That's not efficient. And you can't just beg, you know, the millions of, of companies to produce less because that's not in their best interest. Like, why should one company produce less while the other companies go in gangbusters? Or saying with countries, like, one country alone isn't going to just cut back when all the other countries are still um, going for it. You know, like back to palm oil, when we have um, 150 countries consuming palm oil, like, there's nothing that one country is going to do. You know, one country cutting back doesn't solve it. So you need a global approach. And I see a couple ways to do this. Obviously, these need analysis and fleshing out. But one way is through taxation or just putting fees on environmental impacts. So basically, you intentionally make wood more expensive, oil more expensive, water extraction more expensive, um, you know, mining, you know, minerals more expensive, like you're purposely raising the price of these things so that people buy less of them, right? Now you're not cutting them off. You're just making them more expensive so that you reduce demand. Now this is basic supply and demand stuff that all the economists tell us about. You have to manage that supply somehow, you know, um, and so you do that by reducing demand, by making it more expensive. Now, some will worry that this is just a government ploy to take a lot of money from us, and that's not the way to do it. You would reduce other kinds of taxes to offset this. So this could be revenue neutral. So you could reduce the income tax, the sales tax, the, you know, whatever tax, so that average citizens would come out basically the same. But then built into the economy is this um, incentive to cut back on resources. Um, one other possible way to do this would just be for the world governments to get together through an agreement and set a cap on these various resources. So like here's how much palm oil is going to be made in the world this year or here's how many trees are going to be cut down this year, or, you know, here's how much fossil fuel is going to be used this year. And then within that, companies buy and sell and do what they can do, you know, that would be another way in which these resources would become more expensive. But if you have all these resources cheap, and it's cheap to destroy nature, people are going to keep destroying nature. There's just no way around that. So you have to actually affect the economy with tools like this. Um, so I want to look at one possibility for getting this done. Uh, the World Trade Organization. 
I've been looking into, and it strikes me as incredibly important for solving the world problems we need. Um, given its potential and importance, it surprises me that I don't hear about the World Trade Organization more in mainstream news media. Now, this is part of the United Nations system. It's one of those agencies. Um, it started as GATT, G-A-T-T, uh, General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, I think the name is. Um, in the 90s, it got sort of beefed up and turned into the World Trade Organization. And it has been not the sole driver, but it's been a big part of this interconnection of the global economy that we've talked about in this um, increase in global trade. That happened through negotiations between countries in this uh, venue to reduce tariffs and reduce other obstacles to trade. And so the effort has been to create a level playing field among companies, countries um, and fair competition and basically get countries to open up their markets to global trade. And it's worked. I mean, that's been the, the trend that we're on. So it has so far been driven, um, you know, the goal has been to enable trade and make more trade happen. But it just as easily could be used to manage trade and help trade be healthier for the environment and for people, you know, with these same kind of structures. Now, um, I will also mention, as sort of an aside, there are additional benefits that this organization could give us, even beyond the environmental stuff we've been talking about. They could help us manage our pandemic preparedness, like world trade in personal protective equipment and vaccines and medications and uh, ventilators and equipment and the various ingredients that go into vaccines and medications. Like these are all complex international supply chains that need some management if we're going to have these resources available when the next pandemic hits. And without that ma management, like we've seen, there's been supply shortages. The other critical aspect the WTO could serve is by making global agreements on digital trade. Um, so far, we're like over 20 years into the internet being a mainstream part of our lives, yet there's like almost no international regulation over this um, inherently worldwide um, phenomenon. And so in my other episode, I've talked about artificial intelligence and deep fakes and um, Facebook and all that kind of stuff that needs management. This is one realm where that can happen. And that's also critical to humanity. Um, so the WTO is at an interesting point at the moment. Um, it's been struggling for the last few years. Um, one important part of its structure that I think may need adjusting is that it's entirely consensus-based. So basically, for something to happen, it requires every country to be on board. So we have 197 countries in the world, and I don't know how you get all 197 to agree on something. 
So if somebody disagrees or a handful of countries disagree, they can just block action on things. And so over the last few years, it's just gotten really bogged down. And they haven't been able to come up with new agreements that are necessary, um, you know, like the pandemic preparedness and the digital, you know, um, agreements. Part of this has been um, just some philosophical issues in the world that have been hard to resolve, like the two largest economies, the United States and China, having very different approaches. Um, you know, China is known for heavily subsidizing its industries, which many countries don't like because they see it as unfair um, competition. Like they basically can't compete with those low prices that um, China ends up creating. Um, and then similar concerns against the United States around agriculture. Like the United States heavily uh, subsidizes agriculture. And so farmers in other countries complain that they can't compete. You know, so there's these big ideological differences that um, have just, the world has had trouble um, negotiating this. And then um, under the Trump administration, the last US president, this all got worse and came to a head. Basically, um, the United States was upset with China's trade policy and basically just started to go outside the um, agreements of the World Trade Organization and engage in like tariff wars or trade wars um, by putting tariffs on products. And then other countries retaliated by doing their own trade uh, tariffs. So all this trade war stuff happened outside of the WTO. Like, this is not following WTO rules. Trump also blocked the appointment of um, officials to the appellate body within the WTO. This is a body that's critical for resolving differences between countries um, as they disagree about the rules and different approaches. So basically, it's been left without any mechanism for resolving disputes which kind of makes the whole thing useless because anybody can do whatever they want and nobody can do anything about it. So um, this has led a lot of people to wonder, like, is this the death of the WTO? Like, can it be re revived? You know, it's really struggling. My sense is that a lot of people will understand the importance of such a body, even just to maintain this globalized trade that we have in a decent way. My guess is that many corporations around the world will lobby for this to be revived because they benefit from a more efficient system in the world where practices are standard and they don't have like a million agreements with a million uh, countries. So, as the world takes a close look at reviving this important body, they might consider these additional uses that it could be critical for, like managing the, econ uh, the environment and managing the climate and giving ourselves a world economy that keeps us within that um, you know, danger zone beyond which we destroy the planet. Um, and that itself would be bad for the economy. So the World Trade Organization seems critically important, and um, I'm going to be keeping an eye on it. I'll have other guests on the show that can talk about this more deeply. 
because it seems like a really important space to watch. So we have talked about a lot. I'm about to wrap this up. I have a couple key concepts for you that I'd love for you to take away and remember if you're willing. One is that nature is critical for human survival and for managing the climate. Number two, our world economy is breaking it. And number three, we desperately need world systems in place to manage this world economy. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm grateful for your time. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for being a good enough person to want to know about your world um, and think about things. I hope this has been helpful. If it has, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family. Just send them a link and have them listen to this show. Um, also very helpful on podcast or on YouTube to just subscribe, hit the like button, leave a comment, all that good stuff helps the bots that run the internet know that you care about it and then they'll recommend it to other people. All that stuff is really helpful. And also I love feedback on the show. It really helps me grow, um, in order to know how this impacts you and what you think of it. So you can go to my website, um, and leave a message there and I would love to hear from you. All right. Thank you so much. Until next time, let's just be the best people we can be. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.